this is like the Uluru of Scottish rock art, which is one big boulder that's just covered in rock art. So the size of it is impressive. The range of stuff that's that's on it, the range of motifs is really impressive, impressive as well. This is right in the edge of Glasgow, it's incredible. So there's a whole range of things that come together to make this, you know, a really exciting and important place. Hi, welcome to Adventures in Dowsing podcast number 47. I'm Graham Gardner. Now, this is a bit of an unexpected and unplanned podcast, uh, but circumstances conspired to make it happen, and I'm keen to get it out uh, as soon as I can. Uh, the Cockno Stone, the subject of this podcast, is a prehistoric cup and ring mark stone on the northern outskirts of Glasgow. It's famous for being the largest such stone known, and its size is something like 16 by 9 metres, and it's also famous for having been buried for its own protection since 1964. The stone was last excavated by maverick archaeologist Ludovic McClellan Mann, who believed that it was a star map showing Glasgow at its centre, and he devised a grid scheme of 38 radial divisions like a clock face radiating from the central marking that he claimed represented Glasgow. And in 1937, for a visit by the Glasgow Archaeological Society, he painted in all the cup and ring marks and added his radio grid using white paint. And it is the striking photographs of this decorated stone that has caught the imagination of many people in the 51 years since the stone was last seen, myself included. Now, Mann was somewhat of a visionary and was a proponent of ancient metrology and archaeoastronomy. He had identified common units of measurements in uh, artefacts that he'd found at sites around Glasgow, and from two almost identical cup and ring carvings on separate stones that he studied in 1930, he calculated that these markings were actually recording a solar eclipse that had happened in the Glasgow area in 2983 BC. Now, all of this, of course, is well before Alexander Tom uh, and his megalithic yard and archaeoastronomy in general, uh, or even computer astronomy programs came along. But his calculations have subsequently been verified using computer astronomy programs. Um, I've been interested in this stone for many years since I started investigating Glasgow's secret geometry, the city's grid of alignments that was written about by Harry Bell in the 1980s. Uh, Harry had been inspired by Mann's writing, and in turn, uh, his book Glasgow Secret Geometry inspired not only me, but local filmmaker May Miles Thomas, who in 2007 received an Arts Council grant to produce a BAFTA award-winning interactive website about Glasgow Secret Geometry called The Devil's Plantation. And uh, as part of that project, she came into contact with the local residents whose garden actually covers about half of the Cockner Stone, and she began making inquiries about getting the stone uncovered. Uh, now, as you can imagine, this is a complex process requiring the cooperation of several parties, including the local authorities and Historic Scotland, and without any funding, it looked unlikely that anything was going to happen. Uh, this is until last year, when the Madrid-based company Factum Arte, who are specialists in laser scan recording of ancient artefacts, saw May's film and got in touch with her. And uh, another interested party was world-class stone conservator Richard Salmon from New York. 
So anyway, to cut a long story short, uh, it came about that over the course of last year, uh, all these people got together and the necessary conditions were achieved to manifest a test dig on the stone. And with the involvement of Glasgow University's archaeology department uh, under the supervision of Kenny Brophy, a one metre wide test trench was dug in early September to see what state the stone was in. And, uh, of course, I was there to do some dowsing around the site and to talk to everybody involved. So, first I asked May if she would give us uh, some background on the project. So, May, as a a filmmaker, it seems rather strange that you're so heavily involved in this project. So, what's your story? How did you get interested in this? Well, the story of this was um, in 2007. I I was lucky enough to get an award called the Creative Scotland Award. And my intention at the time was to make a film based on the secret geometry of Glasgow, based on Harry Bell's book. I don't know if you're, you're aware of the book, Glasgow's Secret Geometry, the city's oldest mystery. Anyway, uh, my intention was to make a film, but the Arts Council of Scotland wouldn't let me make a film. So I proposed to them that I would make a website and I would sneak in 66 short films based around the sites that Harry cites in his book. I was contacted uh, by a man called David Marks, who lives near Cocknell, which is the site of the Cocknell or Druid Stone. And it's quite funny because I spent weeks trying to find this stone, unaware of the fact that it was buried underground, and it was buried in 1964 to deter the vandals of Faithfully, which I think is a wee bit of a class issue. But there you go. And so, uh, um, Mr Marks contacted me with a view to excavating the stone because half of the stone lies on his land. He's got a three-acre garden. The other half of the stone belongs to Western Bartonshire Council. So his ambition was to have the stone uncovered. And I made the first attempts to contact Historic Scotland and the local council with a view to doing a site survey and just to talk about the feasibility of this thing ever happening. I had arranged all of this and then out of the blue suddenly Mr Mark sadly passed away and uh, out of respect to, to Mrs Marks, I decided to put the whole thing into abeyance I thought it's not worth pursuing and I couldn't see how I could possibly on my own be the driver of this particular project I let things lie for a bit but then last year I got a very strange email out of the blue from a guy called Ferdinand Samara Smith who works for a place called Factum Arte, who are art fabricators. They're based in Madrid and Bologna. Would I be interested, he asked, if I would make a film about the Cockno Stone because his company uh, had a proposal to excavate and to replicate the stone using a 3D system called Lucida, which they've used on previous projects. Um, These guys are world-class at what they do. One of their recent uh, gigs is uh, they did a, an exact replica of Tutankhamun's tomb for the Egyptian government and they work with major galleries and museums all over the world and with some uh, high-profile artists to boot. So they flew me out to Madrid. I met the whole team. Um, I loved the proposal. I thought it was the most exciting proposal that I'd come across so far and far far more than I could ever have anticipated for myself because my part in this was yeah, there is a story here um, I, I felt that why should 
something as remarkable as the Cockno Stone, which is said to be the largest cup and ring stone in existence. Why should it be lying underground? If this was anywhere else but a corner of northwest Glasgow, this would be world famous. So I felt quite strongly that the people who live locally should have the chance to see what's on their own doorstep. And it raises questions about your heritage and culture and class. And so when uh, Ferdinand said to me let's try and get this stone uncovered I said I'm all for it but we have to think about you know, what the consequences will be for the actual stone itself will it be reburied, where will the replica be placed, so where we are at the moment, I'm, I'm up here recording uh, a test dig with students and uh, Kenny Brophy from uh, Glasgow University Archaeology Department and we've done this little test dig It's looking promising. We've uncovered several cup and ring marks and also some graffiti, which they seem to think is particularly exciting. And the trench will now be filled. And Ferdinand has to go back to Madrid now and think about how are we going to possibly raise the funds to excavate the entire stone, which measures 55 feet by 35, 40 feet. It's it's absolutely massive stone. If we can get the go-ahead and if we can raise the necessary funds, uh, because it also depends on permissions from Historic Scotland and Mrs Marks, because let's not forget it's on her land as well, then we'll have a green light and we can excavate this. And for my part, I'd quite like to get part of that funding towards helping me to make my film. So it's a future project. Whether it'll happen, who knows. But why should you stop dreaming? Well, quite. So uh, Historic Scotland were up uh, today having a look? Is there... Yeah, um, John Raven from Historic Scotland came and had a look at Stone. He seemed really happy with the way that the dig had proceeded. There's always the fear that um, the local council or the authorities won't like the approach that's been taken, but everything up here has went really smoothly. And uh, and Mrs Marks hopefully is coming down tomorrow to have a wee look for herself. Oh, good. Because the aim is really to get her on side. This can't go ahead without her permission. And it wouldn't make any sense to only dig up half the stone. And what you've seen so far, it's only been a a, a small one-metre trench, but uh, has it excited you as much as you thought? I think it is really exciting. When we left it yesterday, there was virtually nothing to see, but when I arrived uh, just about this afternoon and came down, um, I could see very visibly several cup and ring markings and also some graffiti, which is great. So they're they're very happy with it. And I just think we don't know exactly which portion of the stone has been uncovered. It'd be great to see the rest of it. Hi. Uh, my name's Ivan Macbeth. Um, I'm a druid. I build stone circles and I dance for my life. I uh, make mixes and I hold groups of ecstatic dance. And you are listening right now to Adventures in Dowsing from the British Society of Dowsers. Now, if the stone is eventually excavated, uh, a very moot question is, what should be done with it? Should we leave it uh, exposed to naturally weather itself, or should we record it and then rebury it? And this is a very moot question, uh, especially given the recent destruction in the Middle East of the World Heritage Site of Palmyra by IS insurgents. 
and this is partly the reason why the stone was reburied back in the the 60s because the they didn't feel that the local residents uh, would look after it and that the stone would be subject to vandalism Anyway, whatever route is taken, we do fortunately have the technology available today to make an accurate 3D laser scan to record the stone uh, before any further deterioration takes place. And this is where Madrid-based company Factum Arte come in. So I asked Ferdinand how they came to be involved. So my name is Ferdinand and I work for a company called Factum Arte. But actually there's two parts of it, one of which is a foundation which uh, takes care of historical projects. Factum Arte does specifically work with contemporary artists, so fabricating kind of big sculptures, doing various projects. And then the foundation is, is more about applying digital technology for usage in conservation. And how did you get involved with this project? Uh, with this project, I basically uh, was shown the article by a colleague at Factum, and um, I chased up Historic Scotland. I emailed people at various levels um, from there. Uh, in the process of researching the project, I came across May Miles Thomas's amazing film, The Devil's Plantation. And I immediately saw that, you know, she'd, she'd done a fair bit of uh, groundwork in the sense that people, people had really responded on her website and, you know, you could see there's a real kind of groundswell of movement of getting this thing done. And I guess it was this uh, sort of very happy sort of meeting of two things, being able to bring the side of it of... Uh, the, the vision of, of being able to make this replica and also from her side seeing uh, this kind of ability to, to tell the story because it's nothing without this amazing um, you know mystery of it, the myth of it the legend um, and then I also got in touch with with Kenny Brophy and, and then Richard who's the last sort of piece of the puzzle was a friend of my uh, boss, Adam Lowe's, and he came along. So we came out here in December last year, met with uh, representatives from the council from Historic Scotland. They seemed very positive about the idea. Uh, And then it's taken since then, it's been a fair bit of kind of legwork of emails and getting everyone coordinated to get a proposal together to get the kind of consent for this trench to be dug. So tell me a bit about the, uh, the conservation work that uh, you guys do. So the the project I started working on was this uh, facsimile of the burial chamber of Tutankhamun. So about five years before it opened, so it opened in 2013, so around 2008, a team from Factum, so long before I was working there, had gone out to um, the Valley of the Kings with... Uh, a laser scanner that they'd specially built in-house called a Lacida laser scanner. And they'd done very detailed scans of all of the walls and um, produced a very accurate facsimile, then mapping photographic data so you get, you know, an objective, uh, very accurate thing. And the idea with, with the burial chamber is that in a kind of area where there are these incredibly ancient um, sites that were never built to be seen. People, you know, mass tourism coming in has a huge impact on these things. And if you're able to to preserve the original but provide something 
using technology that you know really gives people something gives gives people not just a kind of Disneyland experience but something objective then you're sort of getting the best of both worlds and I suppose with with the Coconut Stone relating relating that project to this you know there, there's all sorts of um I, I think over the last few days it's it's been very positive that so many people have different opinions and I, I completely appreciate the the argument from most of the people in the local community they say why can't we be trusted with like with with this monument but on the other hand uh, I can see from the council's perspective they don't have the money a to look after it and b they're not going to risk damaging this thing so I hope that where we come in is perfectly right in the middle we get the best best of both worlds you protect this you know this is this is an important thing it shouldn't be you know we should bury it properly anyway to look after it luckily we found out that from this test that it's all all right but that couldn't that you know we didn't know that that's why we've done this well, I think it's, a, it's an interesting sign that in the very trench that we've just opened, there was a bit of graffiti. There was a bit of graffiti, <laughs> so, yeah. You know, um, so can we trust the, the stone just to be left uncovered? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a big question, that, yeah. and that, that indeed, you know, But quite apart lot. from that, there's the, uh, the prospect of erosion, so you know, yeah, is it right to leave that it uncovered, well. or should we leave it buried for future generations? So, yeah. yeah. No, I mean, to, to me, that's where... That's where all of this, the, the what Factum does, is really interesting, and that's where digital technology can play a part because, you know, you're, you're taking these snapshots, and it, it's with the bigger view. You know, these things don't last forever. Uh, obviously, you can have kind of extremist um, destruction going on in the Middle East at the moment, and that's, you know, that's terrible absolutely terrible but it can happen in you know everything's always degrading mm. and so I think to take you know to catalogue as many things as you can you don't always have to make a great big facsimile but to record it is incredibly important of course though in, in this case it's a perfect opportunity to make something really interesting the story's so good May's a fantastically talented filmmaker and I think that will all come together hopefully in a really kind of rounded project mm. that's my hope for it so what would uh, such a facsimile be made from well basically the, the process would be quite interesting in itself it's a big thing it's mm. we just measured it it's 18 by 9 meters mm. um we'd start off doing a medium range laser scan which sort of gets a broad uh, a canvas to work with and then we do much more detailed um short range laser scanning to, to pick out the the details and then sort of map those on and then you'd, uh, in a sense, it like a jigsaw puzzle, you'd route out sections and then put them back together, make big cast sections. We'd probably do it in a sort of, you know, composite stone that matched the original, mm. that, you know, something that can be outdoors. And the irony I find is if we have this replica there and people do graffiti it, that's their choice. And frankly, mm. these couple of ring marks, they're ancient graffiti. Mm. And we've got graffiti from 1964. Mm. And it's all part of the story in a way. But, you know, if people do what they do to the replica, you know. But I think it'll be interesting anyway. And yeah. I think it'll raise a lot of interesting questions about what kind of thing, what, what you do in these kind of situations. 
Well, whatever is done with the stone, it will require careful monitoring and conservation. Uh, Richard Salmon from New York is an independent expert on stone conservation, and I asked him about his interest in the project. I, I had heard about them wanting to make a laser copy, a perfect copy, and in my role as art restorer, obviously I'm very, very interested in the, uh, the laser mapping of antiquities because I'm very, very concerned that things need to be that it's now our responsibility to be able to protect any monument that's outside and, and the best, quickest, cheapest way to do that is to have the information digitally uh, copied, I, I think I started life as a stone carver master carver and uh, so I'm very, very aware of the vulnerability of stone to the, to the elements, you know, with acid rain and all that I was going to work on uh, cathedrals when I was a young, when I was younger, and uh, I was told very early on that it was a controversial subject. You know, you cannot really consolidate stone outside. It just stone needs to breathe; it needs to evaporate. So the medieval cathedrals of the world essentially need to be rebuilt bit by bit. You know, so I'm very interested in in training of young people to. Uh, I think there needs to be many more. Uh, apprenticeships in stone carving and stone masonry and that sort of thing. But I was interested, does stone not get harder when it's exposed to the outside? It gets harder for a while, yeah. Right. The, the, the bedrock is soft and then as it's exposed to the atmosphere it, it hardens and forms a crust but then eventually that crust then with the um, freeze-thaw cycle uh, spalls off, falls off. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's one of the fascinating things of my life that, that uh, people still, they don't seem to understand the whole lime mortar. Lime mortar, to me, is you know, the holy grail. If you, if you point a wall with cement instead of lime mortar, you reverse the osmosis process so that the stone spalls off and the pointing is left. Right. When it's pointed with lime, the evaporation goes out through the lime and the stone is left. And just people don't seem to be able to get that simple fact in their heads <laughs> they don't trust the slightly more crumbly line so if you were to restore this site uh, from a laser scan would you uh, carve it from another piece of similar rock or oh no no no, no. It, it would what? it would be cast in well we don't know what material yet um they often this is a company called uh Factomate. they're based in madrid and they're doing fantastic work all over the world and they have been using, uh, I think, scag- scagliola for a lot of things, which is a, a sort of a hard plaster that you used to get these marbleized columns in the Renaissance. For an outdoor job, probably it would, I would imagine it would be an epoxy now, mm-hmm. an epoxy resin. Um, and it wouldn't necessarily be in the same place, it would be in a similar environment, I would think, but not exactly the same place. I think everybody would love to see the original rock uncovered it's a it's a real brain teaser you know archaeology on the edges of cities you know it's obviously perfect as it is and you can do everything you want you can have some young star architect to make a cover for it or you can put it under glass but the best is to be able to leave it as it is because that's what it's all about it's an object what what does it mean? It could mean all sorts of things, but we're never going to know. Um, so it's just an object of contemplation. What I like about this one particularly is that obviously 
the original stonework itself is graffiti. The reason they buried it is because modern people were graffitiing it. Yes. We just heard today of a man uh, who may... We uncovered a graffiti of a name and a lady from the local uh, housing estate came and she said, oh, she'd heard him arguing with the people who were burying it, saying that they couldn't bury it because the local people owned it, but he was the person who had graffitied it, it seems. So he claimed it. Probably because he loved it. (laughs) That's what you do. I I feel the same myself. I'm a sculptor. You know, you sculpt, you look at a, a natural rock... And you see all sorts of shapes in it, and you want to sculpt it, but you know that when you sculpt it, you're, you're ruining the yeah. natural rock. But you want to apply your own imagination to it as well. Yeah, yeah. It's like cloud gazing. <laughs> yeah, so that's what this is all about. Is it worth doing? Of course it is. It's like anything else. If you, if you don't do it, you're, you don't do it. Yeah. <laughs> that's life. You, you, you need to make a... Uh, well, it's a big question. I mean, yeah. should it be uncovered because it is one of the most spectacular uh, rock uh, art carvings exactly. in Scotland? It or? should, of course, be uncovered. Yeah. Can you trust the local people yeah. not to graffiti it again? Who knows? Yeah. You probably can if you give them the power to be the ones who are protecting it. It's, it's all about democracy, isn't it? It's, yeah, yeah. Are you being policed? You know, do people murder each other? not murder each other because they're being policed or because human beings don't murder each other that's the big question but then there's there's also the argument if you do um, create a replica of it should that be in the same place because chances are these carvings are related to the landscape in some way well I think it should be as close as possible to the original place Um, but equally on on this one I think we all agree that the the thing that's piqued our interest is this local rather uh, uh, what did you say? Controversial archaeologist. What was his name? Um, Ludovic, Ludovic McClellan Mann. McClellan Mann. And it and it was his decision to paint the uh, the symbols in. I think that piqued everybody's interest because it it groups them together. It makes them mm. appear more than just a random agglomeration of spirals. And and he thought that it was a, a star map. Well, yeah, that is a very interesting um, theory, and I think that's probably why a lot of us are so interested. I in think that that is what's piqued everybody's yeah. interest, yeah. and other than that, it is just random marks. Yeah. And I think that in itself is is, uh, is an interesting subject. I don't think any of us would be here unless we'd seen that photograph of him yeah. painting it up because it looks like a piece of contemporary art. Yeah. And so I think we all have dreams here of making two or three copies and being able to play a little bit with one to offer it around I don't know to, it, it's it's much more interesting to to us today to see it as a piece of fine art it's absolutely fascinating how all these people uh, myself included have been drawn to this project through the work of Ludovic Mann uh, that photograph of his showing the white painted stone simply haunts the imagination and just won't let go or maybe it's the spirit of the stone itself that waits to be released. Someone else who's uh, haunted by man's work is Kenny Brophy, uh, otherwise known as the Urban Prehistorian, who led the archaeological team from Glasgow University that excavated the stone. Right, so Kenny Brophy, you're the uh, archaeologist and representing the professional side of the, yes, of the organisation. Yes, as opposed to the, the amateur <laughs> side. So tell us, why is this site so important? I think it's important, firstly, because of the the size of the panel so it's it's one 
Um, one big rock that's covered in rock art. It's not just little bits and pieces. Some of the other big rock pan- panels in northern Britain are just, you know, are very disjointed. This is just one huge rock, you know. So it's a bit like, you know, Uluru being the biggest single rock in, in the world in Australia. This is like this is like the Uluru of Scottish rock art. It's just one big boulder that's just covered in rock art. So the size of it is impressive. The range of stuff that's that's on it, the range of motifs is really impress- impressive as well. And I think what's also important is it's got this kind of mythical quality in Glasgow, in this area, because of Ludovic Mann's interventions and his kind of his white paint, and because of it being buried and you know that kind of that, that kind of the stories that go around that, and then we're now uncovering other aspects of that, the local graffiti, the people in there engaging with it before the sixties, and in fact it's so close to the city, it's just incredible. It's you know it's really unique in terms of such a high kind of quantity and centre of rock art stuff that's on the doorstep of you know a million people. Whereas most of the other rock art in, in Britain is in, in hilly areas and remote areas and moors and uplands. This is right in the edge of Glasgow. It's incredible. So there's a whole range of things that come together to make this, you know, a really exciting and important place. And how did uh, you get involved in the, in the project? Uh, well, I, I knew about the site from um, from work I'd done with a master student about ten years ago, and he, he told me about it. And we, we came up and visited, and I couldn't believe it had been buried, you know. And but but then I didn't I didn't imagine I'd be involved in actually a project working on it, but. Um, I was contacted by Ferdinand from Factamarty uh, about a year ago to ask if I'd be interested, or an archaeologist from Glasgow would be interested in getting involved. Uh, and I'm a prehistorian, I also do this urban prehistorian thing, so it's, it's a site that, that appeals to me because of its urban context. Uh, and and then as soon as I kind of met up with the, the team members, I was just there was so much enthusiasm for it, it just was fantastic. And, and, that's, and that's on top of the, the local enthusiasm that we found out about in the last few days, you know, with everyone coming up and, you know, there's, there's such a buzz about it. So, so it's working with, with, with a team of creative and interesting people who do great stuff, you know, international quality level, and also the kind of the context of what we're doing here, the local context, makes it a really exciting project. So I've only been involved really for about a year in terms of thinking about this, but, you know, it's something that's going to take up a lot more of my time in the next couple of years, hopefully. And was it hard to get permission to, to do this trial excavation? It was actually it was actually quite easy. Historic Scotland were very, very good. We've worked with um, John Raven, who's the, the, the ancient monument inspector here. He's been they, right through the process. They've advised us. They've kind of held our hand with it. They've made it all very painless. We've had discussions on site with them. You know, their stone conservator has been keeping an eye on things. You know, they've suggested things. We've taken it on board, and the whole process has been managed really smoothly. So, it's actually been it's actually been really good. And the historic Scotland have been have been very supportive up to this stage. And even though we know they can't put money in, they can they can make it happen because they can they're the ones that say yes, it can or can't happen. So we couldn't do it without them. So, so actually getting the permission has been has been actually quite a relatively straightforward process compared to some sites I've excavated in the past. So, what's the next step? The next step is, um, I think that I want to go away, I need to write up the, the brief excavation results and try and get that out there and maybe do some local media stuff, um, get things out online so that people can read what happened, so that we don't just disappear for a year and then everyone goes, well, what do they do? You know, So I want, I want to keep communicating with the local people, I'm going to try and give a talk locally, maybe go and do stuff in the local schools, continue doing my own things and also at the same time working with Ferdinand to try and raise the money to do the next phase of the project which is going to be a, a big undertaking but what happens it's going to be an absolutely awesome project because you know it's going to be it's going to be major news it's going to be a big story it's going to be exciting it's going to be a lot of people here it's going to be a big logistical task to do it but if it works it's going to be unbelievable so a lot of hard work ahead to make it to make it actually happen but it's a it's a good outcome to chase I think it's uh, fascinating because um, uh, we've all seen the picture of uh, man's excavation with all the white lines mm, yeah, painted yeah, in. I yes. think that's what's drawn a lot of us here. Yeah, actually, um, mm. what's your, what's your understanding of man's work? 
and the other sites he's done around yeah. Glasgow. Well, Ludovic Mann, Ludovic Mann is, a, is a really fascinating figure who's been re-evaluated in Scottish archaeology in the last 10 years or so, who was kind of basically written off as a crackpot for a whole range of different reasons. But actually, if you go back and look at what Mann did, he was a great publicist, he was a great communicator. He told the people of Glasgow and the people of wherever he was working what he was doing. He kind of cut out all of the academic nonsense and didn't do things through journals and through kind of places where virtually no one reads except professionals and he went straight to local newspapers and media and all you know and and he tried to communicate with people in a in a in a in a way that was that was you know it was their level you know he wasn't trying to do anything other than just say these things these people in the past were really sophisticated and clever people you know and we should celebrate that and and you know that and and he was so he was finding burials in quarries and he was finding he was digging stuff in advance of road developments and things. So he was like he was picking up archaeological sites that professionals weren't even interested in, often in urban contexts. And then he was championing them. He was telling people about them. And when he dug at Nappers and Clydebank, there was thousands of people who came to visit his site. You know that doesn't happen now. You know I excavate I excavate sites, and if I get ten visitors in two weeks, I'm happy. You know so and and he was getting people getting they, was, they were chartering buses to bring them out to his excavation. Anyone that can do that is a special character. So even though towards the end of his career some of his stuff started to become a bit more esoteric and is not in the, ma- the mainstream of archaeology, it's still really interesting and it's still stuff that we should look back and take seriously. So, so one of the things we w- I really want to do here is to engage with what Mann was doing here, what he was doing with the rock art, what he was doing at Nappers, you know, what was Ludovic Mann's Glasgow like and try and pull that together as well. So that's a kind of wider, quite exciting aim of this project for me as well is to kind of a, a chance to explore Ludovic Mann, the character as well, Mann the man. <laughs> The so, yeah, yeah. yeah, so that, that so I think that you know it's that that's a really important part of this as well. And as you said, the white paint on the stone, whether that's that's all gone now or not, or whether there's traces of it left, you know, that's like a ghostly imprint on that, and that's what people see. Almost every photograph has got that white paint. It's like indelibly on people's minds, even if not in the rock. So it's it's a really important part of the story here. What fascinated me about it is this man's um, idea of Glasgow being laid out like a clock face, which I think he got from this stone. Yes. Is that right? Yeah, I think he was, he was interested in trying to look at the broader patterns um, and to try and think about how that fitted in with representing the sky and the moon. And he was interested in serpents. And, you know, he was, he was very drawn, I think, by a lot of sources around the world. He's a very educated guy and he knew, he knew his way around, you know, anthropological literature and looking at other places. So I think that actually, yeah, I think he saw... He, he saw the kind of the, the prehistoric people writing their history in the land, and part of that key thing was the, the, the inscriptions on rock art, but also important places. So at Nappers, with a kind of strange timber spiral that he identified, he again saw that as representing something cosmological. So I think it was all it was uh, there was a lot of things tied together in his mind that that were drawn from all around the world as a real kind of melting pot of kind of all sorts of ideas, some which were didn't hit the mark and some which did. You know, but it, but it, but it's it's exciting, you know, and it's really interesting stuff. And he presented it really nicely, um, and so that's that's really one of the key things I want to bring out here, or we want to think about. Do you think we'd actually get back into uh, his state of mind and what he was actually talking about? I think we might be. I'd like to do that. I'd like to channel man a wee bit. I mean, I think it's possible. I think that there's you know there's a few biographies that are you know just biography articles and journals. There's a lot of his own writing, and I think it's possible to immerse yourself in man's mindset. And if that means going to some strange places, I'm willing to. I'm willing to try. So. <laughs> we'll keep an eye on your Twitter feed. <laughs> yes, it might get stranger as the time goes on. Finally, let's hear from May Miles Thomas again, as this project would not be happening at all without her having made the Devil's Plantation website and film, uh, plus her continuing enthusiasm for the project and willingness to make the necessary connections with people to try and move things forward. You know, this is something that's going to require a lot of funding and that funding has not been forthcoming so it's not going to be uh, an easy task to get things uh, progressing from here. 
I asked May what she thought was the best possible outcome for the stone. If we could uncover the whole stone and it can be scanned and a replica can be made, I think there's every argument for reburying the stone and either citing the replica on the site of the stone itself or failing that to donate the replica to something like Clyde Bank Museum, which I think would be a wonderful asset for them. Um, But I actually like the idea of it being in the landscape rather than being housed in some museum. Besides, the scale of it would sort of suggest that it would be far better better sited outside. Um, There was some talk today during the dig that they could uh, perhaps leave a section of the original opened and somehow find a way of protecting it using glass or uh, plexiglass or something so that people could have a wee window into what the real stone looks like. And for my part, I would like to be able to have the chance to make a nice film about it and do something really beautiful because I'm attracted to the stone purely because of its mystery. Nobody knows what it represents. (laughs) So... uh, all we can be is optimistic and then hope that there's some outcome for this. Well, I would agree that it's, it's important to, um, if, if there's a replica made, it's important to have it in the location, I think, because these things I think are always so. should be seen in context with the, the greater landscape. Yeah, I think so too. And there's precedence for doing that, like the uh, the Borstone and Denad. Yes, yeah. aye, of course. So, yeah. um, I, don't see, I don't see any reason why not, and it's not like this is a heavily populated area. When the stone was originally buried in 1964, uh, I thought it was a bit rich of Glasgow University to arrogate to themselves the the role of cultural arbiter. I think that belongs to mm. the, the people. Um, it's their stone and they should be able to live with it, not have it buried under a metre of soil and forgotten about. Yeah, but then again, would it still be here today, 50 years later? <sighs> That's that's a big that's a good question. Um, I think though that you know you want to give people the benefit of the doubt, and it helps if people have a sense of ownership mm-hmm. of what's on their doorstep, and so they can police it themselves and they take pride in it. You know, there's, it's too easy to assume because it was built next to um, a housing scheme and it was overrun with Neds, and I, I'm sure there is a risk of damage being done to the stone. But then you have to um, ask the question: What are you preserving here? You know, why why would you want to preserve something and and you know in aspect leave it intact? Why don't you let the weather take take it away? Do, do you know what I mean? It's like it's there, this idea of everything has to be conserved is 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 quite a controversial one. But I certainly think I keep it in the landscape. Mm. You should definitely keep it in the landscape. Well, the weather is the other big argument. You know, natural erosion uh, would take its toll fairly quickly. I'm, I mean, I'm thinking of places like the uh, the Balloch Mile Cup and Ring Marks uh-huh. down in Ayrshire, yes. which have only been exposed yes. since 1974, I think. Uh-huh. And I'm sure they're, they're more They're showing signs of erosion. Yeah, just a natural uh-huh. period of time. Yes. Well, this is perhaps why it would be great to do the replica. And if we could mm. have the replica here and get the local community involved in it so that they themselves will be feel inclined to protect it. That's the best you can hope for. Yeah. So that is the story of the Cochino Stone. But, of course, it's not finished yet. This is just the end of another chapter. There's more to be told. Uh, in the meantime, let me leave the very last word on these amazing rock carvings to Ludovic McClellan Mann, who wrote, When cut on outcrops of sandstone or other soft rock... 
these precious designs, which cannot always be removed to a museum, are apt to disappear through weathering within a few years after their discovery by turf lifting. For the sake of posterity, they ought to be preserved, and the turf should be replaced as soon as the sculpturings have been copied. So there. Well, that's uh, really all we've got time for. Uh, if you have any comments about the show that you would like to share, please send an email to podcast at adventuresanddowsing.com or you can leave comments on particular episodes on the main website at adventuresanddowsing.com. As usual, I'll put some links to uh, related websites on this podcast uh, on the main page. And if you enjoy the podcast, do please take a moment to write a, a good review for us on iTunes. So thanks to you for listening, and as always, many thanks to Hilary Brooks and Not For Pussies for the music, and I hope you can join me next time for more Adventures in Dowsing.